the, the most successful people that I know, uh, whether they're pro athletes or former pro athletes or have made career transitions to other professions or CEOs of large organizations, um, one thing you learn from them is that they are very coachable no matter what level they're at. And, you know, as someone that's run large organizations, I have friends that run even larger organizations, publicly traded companies. They have, they have a mastermind group around them that mm. helps them get to the next level. And that, you know, could be ex an executive coach. It could be multiple executive coaches. It could be, um, you know, trainers, you know, nutritionists. They, they have this army of folks around them because, you no, know, first of all, they can afford it in many ways. But, but when I see that mentorship happening and I try to do it for people in my life um, that are on their way up, it really makes all the difference. And I certainly wouldn't be where I am today without a, you know, a laundry list of folks that, you know, believed in me. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe bomb today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today has a laundry list of things we could talk about that he does, is doing, okay. has done, is going to be doing, uh, but we'll try to truncate it a little bit. Um, currently, he's the CEO of Republic Brands. He spent the majority of his career advertising for major brands, things you've probably seen on TV, and we're going to ask him about that here in a minute. Um, the previous 10 years of his career, he was a chairman and CEO from North America for Havas, which is a large advertising agency where he led 2,500 people at that particular company. Um, as he's described to me, I would consider his philosophy of leadership based on the things he's learned in baseball and hockey, his team ethics. He tries to bring that to his leadership of these companies. Um, he is a member of the newly formed Fan Diversity Inclusion Council for the NHL. He's working to increase diversity in hockey. Um, which is, if you know anything about trying to incorporate people for sports, let alone getting to communities that, you know, don't normally play particular sports, it is not an easy task. So he's got his work ahead of him, but it is definitely going to be worth it. Um, he's also the chairman for a, I think, nonprofit. He'll correct me here in a second. Yes. Uh, the Inner City Education Program. Welcome to the show, Paul Marabella. Jesse, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks for joining me. Um, if you guys are watching the YouTube version, you can see Paul's really cool, uh, you know, home <laughs> office versus my home office, which is now blank and echoey yeah. and taking everything out of the second floor of the house. Um, it took me all of COVID to perfect this background. So it's, uh, well, it's like, it's got really dramatic lighting. So, so if you're on the audio only version, you can go over to YouTube and check out the YouTube version, uh, youtube.com slash S O L P R I. Um, and see, you know, he's got the, he's got his black hoodie on, he's got the black background, real dramatic <laughs> lighting, all his, his like hockey all about stuff going on. It's all about a fact. It's, it's, it, you got it going on. You, I mean, you really, you, you, you took the, uh, the CEO edge and, and really yeah. dressed it up. So. Thank you. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> 
you know, uh, the one thing I've got to ask you, you know, you mentioned, and uh, I guess, excuse me for doxing you, but you said something about being 50 ish, I guess I'll say, um, are you thinking about retiring? I mean, you've done a lot of things. Isn't, isn't it time to just like say, Hey, I'm just going to play hockey and hang out at home and drink coffee and and give it up. I mean, you stay really, really busy. I love that question. Uh, I probably will never retire. Okay. And it's like, um, you know, they say, you know, sharks, when they stop swimming, they die. So I, I have a feeling that if I don't keep moving, uh, and keep my brain going, I I love to build things. I Mm. love to, uh, fix things. I love to transform, whether it's companies or nonprofits or, or, or teams. So mm-hmm. I still have a lot of energy. Uh, I don't feel 51. Uh, I feel 31. So I think I'm going to ride that as long as I can. And, uh, you know, it's interesting before COVID, I flew maybe 250 to 300,000 miles a year. I didn't see my wife. I wasn't in the house that often. And then when COVID hit, about two weeks in, my wife said, can you go back on the road? <laughs> I'm not used to having you in the house. So uh, now that I'm back in the office and have been for, for almost a year, um, you know, that's been, that's been good, you know, good for our relationship and good for the family dynamic. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I know that's been tough um, for a lot of people. And even, you know, my wife and I, who we've worked at home together for the, even prior to being married. And so for the majority of our you know, kind of relationship, uh, five years today, actually. Wow. Enough. Um, so not terribly long, but <laughs> you know, getting along there. Yeah. A- anyway, we, so we are already used to spending time with each other, sharing an office, all those right. kind of things. Um, except when I need to be kicked out for her meetings and stuff. <laughs> but then like with the lockdown and stuff, it was just like, even us who are used to that situation, it was just like increased pressure of we're not going anywhere we're not doing anything and i know that was like yeah i i felt like if for us it was stressful for people like you who were you know obviously on the road a ton it had to have been such a big dynamic change just trying to deal with work changes and life changes and the dynamic of the house and all that stuff yeah it's routines change i'm a creature of habit like like a lot of athletes you know superstitious creature of habit Mm -hmm like to like to do things exactly the same way every day. Uh, and so that was probably the biggest impact for me is that it affected my routines, um, you know, both from my work routine, my exercise routines, and then my team sport routines. They, for like everybody, they were out the window. And that was probably the hardest adjustment for me and had to find new ways to exercise, couldn't skate, had to use, you know, inline skates and skate outside, right? So there were a variety of different adjustments. So there's a lot of positives, I think, that came from it for me. I mean, I was never, for example, I was never a morning workout person. And about halfway through COVID, when the CrossFit gym opened back up, I started going at 6.30. I started pulling myself out of bed at 5, 5, 5.30, which was not ever my routine in my life. And now it's stuck, right? So I think there's certainly, if you take a crisis and there's opportunity to turn it into positive as well. So talking about not being a, like a morning exercise person, I always wonder about this because I, I just did a, uh, a running video on this about like why to become a morning runner because mm. some people have difficulty with it, right? Mm. And my opinion for what that's worth is largely to do it because of like decision fatigue, just the later and later it goes on in the day, it becomes harder and harder to make like good choices for yourself. Right. So especially for somebody like you, who's 
clearly got a lot of obligations to take care of. I would think you, you know, you probably have a stronger, I don't know, called decision muscle <laughs> for a lack of a better term than many people. Um, but were, so were you like, like finishing work up and then hitting the ice after that was, was that the routine? Was it like just a way to blow off stress or, or, or how did you fit that in? Yeah. Well, there was no ice during the, you know, no, I mean, I mean, prior to, Oh, generally. Oh, Oh, well, well, listen for, for guys, my age, ice is after 10 o'clock at night. So there's okay. no, there's, there's very little morning ice for, uh, there, there are a couple skates here in Chicago that are in the morning. Um, but, but typically for me, it, it's at, anywhere from nine to 11 at night. And, you know, like I told my, my team, if it's after 10 o'clock, you're probably not going to see me <laughs> Yeah, because it makes the next morning that much more difficult. But again, you know, I really felt the, the impact of not being around the team, not being in the locker room, not having that camaraderie, you know, which, you know, as a, as a, I was never a pro athlete, but as a college athlete and, 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 um, even a high school athlete, you know, those relationships are, are so important to the rest of your life. And, and I needed to have that back. So that's, that's been in CrossFit's like that too. I know CrossFitters love to talk about CrossFit as kind of the knock on it, but it's a lot, it's very, it's a team dynamic. You're not just going to the gym and working out by yourself. Yeah. It's, it's very much a family dynamic, which is one of the reasons why I love it. Well, and it's, that's definitely the like, kind of cliche about crossfit is it yeah know, it, you'll know somebody does crossfit because they're going to tell you <laughs> it's true but you know i think you have make and i and i'm sure i've made those jokes too just because it's not my it's not my particular bend at least not at this point in my life but i mean i think you give it a fair shake like you give it some some merit to think about in that i definitely miss my guys you know from college from being a collegiate athlete there's something about having your team like there there is it's just not really in many places as somebody outside of the school system somebody who is not a professional athlete who you know outside of that system and if you've never I would think especially for people who haven't really been a part of like a strong tight-knit team before right that that environment's got to be like like what is this I've never you know it's just like discovering this holy grail of um, social connection, which is something which obviously we've all missed a ton over the last yeah. 18 months or 12 months, or, you know, however things have opened up. So, um, so maybe if you, the listener uh, need something to do, check out a CrossFit gym. I'm yeah. sure they'll be happy to help you. Um, and, you know, happy to have you there. You also brought up decision fatigue. So that, uh, to me, that's all, that's, a close that's one a one a is the team aspect one b is you just walk into the gym and it's programmed for you yeah right you know i don't have to think about it i don't have to you know there's technology to help me track my personal records to help me track my weight like there's mm-hmm. so there's that's for me anyway i don't know about others but for me i don't want to have to think about what my workout's going to be that morning i want to yeah. walk into the gym have it programmed um you know if, it, if there's a lot of running dread it uh <laughs> and and uh and and get through it and then yeah. track my performance and track my results still very data driven which i appreciate yeah well it's it's like if people ask me like i'm perfectly capable of like run coaching because i'm i have such a deep background in that which is why i do the running show um but i still have a coach right even though i've moved away from triathlon like i still have a coach and, and he says he tries not to overcoach me 
So like sometimes he won't give me as much direction as he might somebody else. Right. But it's for the same reason. Cause like I've got enough decisions to make as it is. I don't want to like, he just says, this is what we're doing today. And I say, okay. Right. I mean, I can make a check and go like, well, like I feel this way or I don't feel that way. And we'll have a conversation, but otherwise there's something nice about you just show up and then coach says jump and you say how high and mm-hmm. well, actually coach would say jump this high <laughs> there's mm-hmm. no question about how high so yeah there's something about that that i think people don't like don't take enough stock of like there's this you know the idea about maybe this is a north american thing so i'd love i'd love your opinion mm-hmm. as another north american uh citizen you know, we're very individualistic right like right. i'll do it myself like if it's just like if, if it can't get done right, I'll do it myself. Like I right. can't trust anybody else. Right. But, but I think we miss out on when you can rely on somebody else. Like that takes so much burden off your plate. Even just like taking care of a workout, which isn't right. You know, it, it's a very small thing, but not having to deal with that one thing makes so many other things easier because it's one thing off your plate. Well, well one thing I'll, I'll say about that is. The, the most successful people that I know, uh, whether they're pro athletes or former pro athletes or have made career transitions to other professions or CEOs of large organizations, um, one thing you learn from them is that they are very coachable no matter what level they're at. And, you know, as someone that's run large organizations, I have friends that run even larger organizations, publicly traded companies. They have, they have a mastermind group around them that mm-hmm. helps them get to the next level. And that, you know, it could be ex- an executive coach. It could be multiple executive coaches. It could be, um, you know, trainers, you know, nutritionists. They, they have this army of folks around them because, you know, first of all, they can afford it in many ways. But, but when I see that mentorship happening and I try to do it for people in my life um, that are on their way up, it, it really makes all the difference. And I certainly wouldn't be where I am today without a, a, you know, a laundry list of folks that, you know, believed in me, whether that was sports or whether that was, was, was business or even dealing with relationships or your nutrition or whatever it might be. Mm. It really takes all of that to kind of get to peak performance, whether that's in business or sports. So it's interesting that you bring that up kind of individualistic versus, uh, you know, even Jordan had, you know, his coaches yeah. off the court, right. You know, through Tim Grover coached him off the court, right. I'm not far from my house here in Chicago, actually. And you read, you read his books about that. And, and you see that, you know, even Jordan needed it. Isn't, is that, is that relentless? Is that that book? It's relentless. Yeah. It's relentless. Yeah. I was like, I, I it would be sitting back there. Oh, it is. <laughs> if, if the bookshelves were still there today, it would be sitting back there. It is now in a box at the moment, but it'll be back maybe here in a, in a few weeks. Um, I was like, I'm pretty sure I've read that book. I feel like I remember speaking of Jordan. Um, gosh, I can't remember. I know there's a number of biographies of Jordan. I read this one and I feel like it, what I took away from it is like people get this in and he deserves all, I think the flack about being really cocky, but I think at least it talked about in the book, how accurate it is. I guess I can't really say, but I'll take it as it is that despite like, being this like cocky sob on the court he was still trying to learn from everybody he was right. still like how do i because he wanted to be right. even better 
Right. So it's like this persona of like, I'm the best, like you, right. can't, you can't get one on me. But also underneath that, being humble enough to say, no, I can still get better. What what can I learn from you? What are you doing? How can I, you know, I, I think we miss that sometimes. Like you get, especially in kind of our Instagram social media reality where you have big personalities and, right. you know, kind of like this self-flagellation or whatever um miss that try yeah. to be humble and learn from other people and know that you need a team to help you well i i learned something from my grandfather a long time ago he didn't go to college and he had a very successful career and he said to me why go to college i can learn any everything from books and i can keep learning right mm-hmm. and you know that was a long time ago of course but i that always stuck with me i read over 100 books a year and you know i you asked me earlier, why, why wouldn't I just retire, you know, in my, at at 51. And the the real answer is because I think I have so much still to learn. I mean, I've even thought about going back to school to get my PhD still. And I'm going to talk to my wife, like, is that weird? You know, going back to school in your, in your fifties, but it's really just about learning. It's in, 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 in having her call me doctor, which would be kind of cool. But but I, you know, I, I changed industries recently, right? So you talk about and, and humility you know, I spent all, you know, over 25 years in advertising and, and, and running agencies and it becomes pretty automatic at that point, right? Like you, you sort of know what is going to happen next. You can kind of predict, you know, the structure and almost put yourself on automatic pilot to some degree. When I changed industries, I'm exhausted at the end of the day because I'm in school every day. Mm-hmm. I'm learning about things that you know, pricing models, distribution models, manufacturing, how things are made, you know, those are things that I haven't thought about in 25 years. Yeah. And that part of my brain's being activated and it's, and it's exhausting, but it's exciting at the same time. Yeah. Well, it, it, did you change because you wanted that? Yes. Yes, I did. I, I, because I felt that um, I love, I love the agency business and the consulting side of, of, of where consulting with the biggest brands in the world. I love that mm-hmm. you know, primarily because you could go from night, you know, talking to Nike in the morning to Anheuser-Busch in the afternoon to, you know, something else in, in later in the day. So you're switching industries and you're switching brands almost every single day. That, that was exciting. Um, but I, you know, wanted a new challenge. I wanted to see if I could, uh, uh, um, you know, not be the coach anymore and be the player, right. Mm-hmm. You know, on the, on the brand side. And I started my career on the brand side, but most of my career has been on the agency side and it's been awesome. I mean, iconic brands, global company, you know, um, leadership, leadership and business management skills are transferable, obviously, right. Uh, still bring that same mentality of team sport. Um, the owner of our business, it's a privately held company owned by one gentleman, and he also owns a pro hockey team, which is cool. So I, I get to have hockey conversations every day, which has mm-hmm. been a nice byproduct of, of it, even though I'm not on that side of the business. So that's why I changed. I wanted, I wanted to change it up. I wanted to try something different uh, and, and really start building and creating on the brand side. And that's what I'm doing. Well, I would think, um, and clearly you would know more than me. Uh, so I'm just, uh, talking out of my ass a little bit here, but, <laughs> but I would think given, you know, if you're familiar with the advertising side and how to set up campaigns for any brand that you would be 
obviously a strong candidate to take an individual brand and make, you know, make its message consistent and make sure it's reaching its audience and connecting with them and doing all of the things right in the correct direction versus somebody like me, who's like trying to learn it from the ground up um, with no background. So is that that's the idea? Yeah, that's the idea. And, and the difference is, is when you're on the consulting side, for the most part, you only see maybe a third of the, of the iceberg, right? Mm -hmm. And you can consult on where the brand should live and how it should go to market and what the messaging should be, what the tone should be. When you're on the brand side, you see it all, which means that you see the whole, all the manu what goes into manufacturing. When you do a campaign and promotion, how does that impact inventory? Right. Right. If you do a promotion, how does that? So you start, you live below the waterline mm -hmm. on, on the client side, which is, which is, which is different. Um, and then another big learning for me, and if anybody listening from the agency side, is that when you're on the consulting side, you think your client's thinking about you all day. And, and it's, it's just like this weird, you're like, why aren't they calling you back? Why aren't they? Because they think about you 20% of the time because they're thinking about all this other stuff yeah. that has nothing to do with marketing or branding. Yeah. Uh, and and it's, that's been a really interesting uh, eye-opener for me. Yeah, there's, I mean, the whole thing, because you got to work, like, like you said, you know, okay, we only have X inventory. So in your case, I'm sure you know how to lead, obviously, huge campaigns, but it's like, oh, if your supplier can only get you so many right. products, well, right. then there's no point in doing this giant campaign. We have no, we have no product to sell. So yeah, and, <laughs> you have and, to do all that. That's right. That's, a, that's exactly it. Um, and, you know, obviously showing re return on investment and, mm -hmm. you know, especially in a privately held company, uh, you know, that, that it hasn't necessarily spent on brand marketing the way that we are now and into the future to, to, you know, um, you know, to really build our portfolio, you know, mm -hmm. I, I love acquisitions and M and A where something I've done my entire career focused on M and A and, you know, where we're active in that, which has been great. Uh, it's been a good part of it for me, but it's, it's really, um, again, it's, I, I look at everything as, as a team sport and, and there's going to be days when you win and there's going to be days when you lose, there's going to be people who aren't feeling uh, up to it on certain days or, you know, the sports analogies, maybe they're hurt. Um, and how do you keep them motivated, especially people who have been in the organization for a long time and, and they're maybe a little bit of afraid of the change and the transformation that's happening. How do you keep them motivated while recruiting a new talent, you know, to the organization? Yeah, it's, you know, from a, a small team perspective, I, I think about the things I have to juggle and then I go, does it get easier as you scale? No. Or, or does it just get more complicated? <laughs> my, my, my you know, inclination is it just becomes more and more convoluted. I feel like you probably move slower and slower as you get bigger, as you have more moving parts. Does, does that seem accurate? Yeah, well, I think if you, you know, there's two things, right? It, it, you have to surround yourself with amazing people. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and again, it sounds cliche, but if you, have, if you have a staff of folks that are playing their positions the right way, and you know are doing it at a world class level. Being the president or CEO is a lot easier, right? Mm -hmm. You're focused on uh, the playbook for how we're going to grow, how are we going to be more profitable, and the team really executes the game plan. Um, you know where it can get unhealthy is is when you're when you're not on the business, but you're too into the, when you're too in the business as as the leader of the organization. Something's broken. Mm -hmm. um, you know if you're worried about things that 
people that are playing that aren't playing their position the right way. Um, you know, you have to figure that out because the business needs you thinking about tomorrow, not necessarily today. Yeah. I think as a game, as a, you know, I know many, um, and I definitely get in that trap at times, just being how small we are, but I know there, I have other kind of, I'm in the e-commerce space. So e-commerce friends yeah. that get trapped in, in that as well. Cause they start like I did with a one man show and then they don't, they don't know where to start bringing people on or how to yeah. hand things off. And they go, well, only I could do this. And it's like, right. no, yeah. like you could find somebody else yeah. to help you. Like earlier, it's like, like with the trainer, you can have, there's somebody, I guarantee there's somebody who knows more about this than you. And if, the, if they don't currently, you can probably train them and find somebody to teach them to know more than you do. <laughs> well, you want them to see things that you can't see right and, yeah. and and it's hard you can't look in the mirror all the time so it's it's you want them to see things you can't see and then the best the best trainers coaches consultants are also training coaching and consulting other people or other teams or other companies and they're bringing the learning of of what they've experienced to you as well and none of us are perfect none of us are, are perfect tens in anything we do even jordan and, you know, look at Patrick Mahomes now, sorry, you know, on your, oh, on no, your you're fine. Chiefs, right. Like he, he needs, um, he needs people to point out to him on video, what's happening. You know, you're dropping your elbow, you're leaving the pocket too soon. Right. So he can work on those things in practice. Um, so they become automatic when he yeah. goes to a game. That's why when, when, uh, you know, our teams, when we pitch practice to me was so important because you want it to be automatic. You want it to be in your limbic brain. You don't necessarily want it you to be winging it um you know right. when when the lights come on right and and we know from sports that that's that's why we do things repetitively to get that muscle uh, muscle memory yeah well i mean that muscle memory is definitely important i think about my kind of martial arts background it's like if you're in the middle of a sparring match you, you don't want to be thinking about like oh i need to like like in right. your brain oh i need to block it's right. just right block it just it just happens it's not right. a Oh, maybe this, and then that'll do. No, it's, right. just, it's a reaction, and and yeah, you absolutely need somebody. I remember so specifically, like I was, you know, as I progressed on in my martial arts career, I was one of the better students in the class, partially because I was older and people drop out, and there's less and less of the older people. Um, so not ne not necessarily just like I'm amazing kind of thing, but <laughs> partly a war of attrition. Um, and the instructor. Like we, I, I spar with her sometimes and she, she would show me things like that. I was doing like tells basically that I didn't even realize I was uh, doing like, Oh, I would do this or this before yeah. I did certain things. And without somebody to, you know, instruct me on those things to help me kind of work those out, then it's mm -hmm. like, you're telegraphing what you're doing, but you don't realize it. It just, I, again, goes back to, you need a team. Like you need people to help you out. You need all that stuff. Um, you got to put your ego aside. Yeah. Humility, you know, humility for me, I, we know, listen, I think a lot of us were like this, you know, in your twenties and maybe thirties, you know, humility was, was fleeting, right? Like it wasn't, right. you know, especially in the industry that I was in, you couldn't, you know, it's hard to show weakness. You kind of have to, you know, move your way through the ranks. Um, I, I would say for me personally, humility didn't come until later, right? And my wife's been amazing at, at that with me. And she certainly points it out when I'm too, being too ego driven. Mm -hmm. um, 
and even even to this day right and and life kind of has a way of doing that to you right for me i've you've been married five years i've been married 18 years no no i've only i've been with her five years oh with you I've only been married for six months. Oh, okay. I didn't get that. Okay. Six months. You have a long way to go. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I've been married for 18 years. So, uh, you know, it's good to have that partner in your life that, that can point those things out to you. And, you know, life has its experiences, right? You start to have children, um, you know, you, you experience some setbacks in your life and, and the cliche goes, it's not how hard you fall down. It's how fast you get back up. Right. We've all had them, even though to your point on the outside, you keep up appearances, you know, you keep moving forward. Everybody has those setbacks, mm-hmm. everybody, including the top, top athletes in the world. And, and that's what I think has built humility in, in me. And certainly um, the last two years for me has, has been probably, you know, the 24 months of just building even more resiliency. So to your question about why don't you stop now, it's because I think I have more gas in the tank now than maybe mm-hmm. I did even 10 years ago. And, and, I would say the last 18 months provided that fuel for me. I'd like to get your uh, opinion or, or personal bend on this or, or how you deal with this, I guess, since you brought it up setbacks, um, frustrations, that kind of stuff. And obviously, you know, you're used to running big companies um, are much bigger than I've ever been a part of. I know if when I have issues, I definitely have like a moment maybe even a day where like, I'm just like dropping F-bombs. I'm really <laughs> frustrated. And I'm just like, why is this happening? Like this shouldn't be happening. And, and then I begin, even amidst that, I begin working feverishly to correct whatever it is. Like, you know, if the like we've had supply chain issues this year, like many people yeah. have had. Yeah. So I'm yeah. know, trying to work on that. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know it bothers my wife that I get so upset because um, she's like, you're going to fix it. Like, why, why are you getting so upset? And I, at least for me, I, I don't know whether it's healthy or not. I, I don't, I'm not sure I'm uh, outside my own ego enough to judge that. Um, but I know internally within that frustration, I almost use it as fuel. Of like right. it gives me like, like an adrenaline boost, or right. like, you know, hitting the nitrous a little bit to just like dig in and get it done. Right have you gone through that? Do you still go do, through that? Like, how do you deal with that situation? Is it, are you a Zen master now where you're like, Oh, this, it's just another shit storm and it's going to pass. Like, yeah, uh, I'm better at it certainly than I used to be. I think there's a, there's a couple things. Um, one is, is that I always say to myself, I can only control what I can control. So mm-hmm. when let's, let's fix what we can control. And that's always the message to my team and to myself, right? Like, Something went wrong, something happened, you know, to your point about supply chain, right? So we're dealing with that too in our business, the yeah. logistics, the cost of containers, you know, the, just the uncertainty in our supply chain and affects our inventory. Yeah. But we can only control the things that we can control. Um, uh, I, I'm a fiery, I'm a fiery guy. And, you know, I'm probably maybe less fiery now than I was 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and, and, and that comes from the competitive, that comes from our competitive nature, right? Mm-hmm. That comes from, um, wanting to win all the time and being competitive. So the, there's there's a shadow side to being that competitive. You know, yeah. as my wife would say, there's a sh- you're one of the most competitive people I know, but there's a shadow side to that. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing that I, the other way that I do it to your point about Zen Master is 
is I, I always just say to the team, when I was in advertising, I would say, guys, it's only advertising, right? We're not, we're not curing cancer. There's, there's, you know, not a, you know, we're not trying to, you know, find the vaccine for COVID. Like we're, we're, right. we're just trying to get this commercial on TV. <laughs> yeah. And, and that everyone's shoulders would typically, yeah, you're right. You know, let's, let's, let's get this worked out. Yeah. Um, and, and I use that, I use that a lot. Like guys, like we're only, it's not that, and I'm, I'm saying it as much for myself as I am yeah. for them in many ways, where, mm-hmm. where I, where I tend to get a little fiery now is when people don't pay attention, right? When they're not playing their position in a way, I know that they're capable of playing it mm-hmm. um, or the organization isn't performing to the level that I know it can, right? Because if they're being sloppy or things that are within our control, we're not controlling. Um, but when you're in front of your group and you cannot, you, you, you're the captain of the ship, you have to be able to keep it under control and they're watching your every move, every facial expression, and when I'm at, when I'm in front of my team, I make sure that, you know, keep myself together and, mm-hmm. and let them know it's going to be okay. When I'm behind closed doors, that, that might be a different, I might have a different <laughs> posture for a second. Yeah. And I might try to meditate or I might try to go have a workout or whatever it might be and just kind of work it off or call some friends in my mastermind group. I have, I have a lot of people in my circle of influence that are very successful, former pro athletes, um, CEOs. And I call them, you know, for a 15 minute check-in and say, Hey, here's what's happening. And I'm, that usually resets me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't like to hard transition, but I'm, I'm going to do it here. Cause I don't yeah, I want to talk about this before we run out of time. So I want to talk a little bit about um, what you're working on uh, with the fan inclusion council, trying to increase yeah. diversity in hockey mm-hmm. and why you're doing it, what you're doing, all that kind of stuff. Can, can you sure. give us the, I guess the elevator pitch and, yeah. and lead us in? Yeah, so I'm, I'm coming at that, that, that passion and mission of mine from a lot of different angles. Um, and, and I'll sort of tell you how I got there. So over 20 years ago, I met a guy named Anson Carter, who's like a brother to me now. He's one of my closest friends. Anson played for the Boston Bruins. And that's when I met him. When I, I'm from Boston originally. Uh, we became friends through, uh, through a connection. And Anson was you know, one of, you know, certainly one of the top five black NHL players you know, in, in history. And now he's an analyst on TNT now that hockey's moved to TNT. So, you know, just in being his friend and and learning about what he dealt with coming through the ranks in Canada and playing at Michigan State and playing in Russia and playing in the NHL and just hearing how hard it was for him to play in a a white dominated sport. Mm -hmm. uh, It just gave me, you know, the, the, the passion and the mission to take a game that I'm passionate about and try to solve for, I would call it a social issue in a, in a sport that I think, you know, can teach kids lessons and, and, and life, um, you know, uh, management beyond the sport. And most sports can do that, but hockey especially. And so I found ways to get involved early on. Inner city education program here in Chicago was my first foray into it. And we provide educational scholarships uh, for inner city kids to go to private schools uh, and help them get into hockey programs and learn the game and then, and then support them all the way through. It's Chicago Blackhawks charity is supported by them. We have 30 kids under scholarship at the moment. And then, um, and then I was asked to be an advisor to the Blackhawks foundation, which is a kind of a wider remit that where they, where they um, 
support organizations in Chicago that that are both you know educational oriented mm-hmm. and and sports oriented. And then as part of that and my relationship with Anson, I was asked to be on the Fan Inclusion Council for the National Hockey League. And you know, it's again no surprise that hockey is a male and white dominated sport, especially at the at the pro level. And when you're sitting in an arena, it's majority white. Mm-hmm. And and that needs to change. It's a it's a beautiful sport. It's an amazing game, uh, and we need to open up the aperture to have more folks in the stands and, and playing the game that um, don't look like me. And so so the NHL has been doing an amazing job of organizing thought leaders and thought partners and from all different walks of life, uh, and and led by Kim Davis and Gary Bettman and and um, Heidi Browning and John Bechner, who are the leaders of my committee, and working closely with Anson. So we've, uh, they've just committed $5 million, which is a start to, to develop programs here in the US to, to raise the diversity of, of that. So, you know, there's, there's, a variety, there's more of that to me, but I found it as a great way to, um, beyond just donating money, to take two things that I'm passionate about and bring it together uh, and start to see, you know, a societal and impact on, on the game that I love. So I, Obviously, you mentioned, um, you know, getting scholarships for uh, minority athletes to go to private schools and go yeah. in the game. Is that the the only way you end up reaching people? I mean, what like so on? I guess boots on the ground level. What what does the initiative um, yeah. look like? And I say that because um, so if we go back, I had to look up this episode number, episode one hundred five, when I was talking to uh, Tony and Augustus, who's um, the former professional hurdler from I hmm. think uh, which African country I can't remember right now. Um, I talked to her um, a lot about just the idea about you know people like you and I, white guys, not being aware of the systems in place that make it harder for black and minority athletes or people, I guess, to become a part of different sports, to participate in, you know, any kind of things around the community, but just like, we didn't grow up in those systems. So it's hard, I think, sometimes for people like us to wrap our heads around what, you know, minorities deal with. Right. Um, So so I'm just curious, like, so when I think about, you know, how do you solve that? I'm like, I don't even know where to start. Yeah. So I, I just curious, like how, sure. how that all comes together, you know, sure. boots, boots on the ground level. Yeah. I mean, listen, you have to be in the community and, and the, the founder of the inner city education program founded the program because he was coaching on a, on a, on a, a flooded park of ice on the West side of Chicago in Garfield park, which is just a few miles from where I live. It's one of the worst neighborhoods in the country. Um, you know, especially over the last year or so. And, you know, he was he's a white guy like me out in the community coaching, learning and meeting these kids and seeing their eyes light up when they, you know, put a crossover together or the puck hits their stick. And, mm-hmm. you know, they had the idea to create this program 13 years ago. And you still need to have boots on the ground in these communities. Right. So a lot of those kids now have come through our program. We have some sitting on our board that go back to these communities and and, you know, as Anson would say, these kids need people that look like them, you know, playing the game. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, see it and be it. And, and that, that is really what our focus is. So I'll tell you a quick story. And, and 
to your point about not having those that lens on because you don't grow up in the community you have to remove the obstacles especially in a game like hockey mm -hmm. and uh one kid said to me one day i said well how are you going to get to the rink and he's like well i can't take the bus um and i said why can't you take the bus and he said because if i walk to the bus stop with my stick in my hockey bag somebody's going to steal it and no matter what's in the bag stinky hockey gear no matter what it is he's like i won't even make it to the bus i won't even make it to the bus you know yeah and, and you just though it's those kinds of stories that you know help you find ways to remove those obstacles so we had coaches go go pick up the kids bring them to the rink you know so you have to it's it's like finding the ways to whether it's financial, whether it's family support system, transportation, uh, whatever it might be, is that we've really perfected ways to remove the obstacles from, from the process. And I mean, that's such a good example of like something that it, it doesn't even, I think for many of us, especially, you know, white men in the country um, to, to continue to pick on us in our place right. of privilege, but just like that, situation i don't even it's not even a consideration for me right like i, I can't go to the bus because somebody's going to steal my stuff no you can't think of you doesn't that's, it that's doesn't a, cross your mind right i'll tell you another a quick story which is just you can't believe it is is i have two <clears throat> teenage daughters and um and i'm also on the boards of some other non-sports related inner city programs like off the street club and some others mm -hmm. just here in chicago and a, a young girl had had asked my daughter, you know, um, you know, where where do you sleep in your house? Like, where is your bed? You know, which she's like, well, I have my room and my bed's in my room. And she's like, well, I can't put my bed under my window because I, I'll some maybe a bullet might come through my window. Mm -hmm. And you just you can't even process what the children are dealing with just a couple miles, you know, from my from my from my home here. Yeah. And, and it just gives you like the, the energy for me anyway, to want to make more of a difference in, in helping these because they're children, they didn't choose this. Right. And you want to, you know, for me, it's using sports and education to find a way out of that situation. Um, and it doesn't always happen, but it's, but it's certainly, you know, two paths that could help, you know, help these kids. Yeah. Um, Paul, I'm sure we could keep going for a while here, but yeah starting to wind down on time. Um, so I'll ask you the same question I ask everybody this season. I have like a season long question I ask every single guest. And uh, this season's question is, how do you stay motivated after failing to reach a goal? Uh, one, one way is, is, is I draw on past success to, you know, fill the tank to go forward, right? So you know, I've had a couple of failures over the past couple, you know, about the past year or so um, that were pretty big for me. Um, you know, one is one, one was a role that I really wanted. Um, you know, I won't say what it was, but it was a high profile role, got down to the finals and didn't get it. Um, and that was a setback for me emotionally. And, but you, you, you know, you draw on any success that you've had in the past, no, no matter how small or large for me to help me, you know, gain the confidence to know that I can do whatever it takes to go forward, right? At this point in my life, you know, I have had some successes and I have had some failures, but drawing on those, on what it felt like to win, what it, what those successes felt like and modeling that, you know, for moving forward has really been my formula. That's a good answer. I don't, I don't know that anybody's given, given quite that answer yet. So that's part of the reason I ask everybody because I always get something a little bit different. <laughs> you know, you, you think, 
you think as you go, you know, 30 some odd episodes in this season, you get the same thing, but it, it always surprises me how it, there's always something a little bit different. And that's why I love asking that question. Yeah, so, it's a great question. Um, Paul, where can people maybe find you or find the brands or the nonprofits you're working on, all, all that kind of stuff, Wh- whatever you want to plug, you know, where, where can people yeah. engage with the things that you're, you're doing? Yeah. So my, my social handle is always at Marabella on all the channels. Um, you know, you can find inner city education, at innercityeducation.org. Um, and you can find my company at republicbrands.com. And, you know, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Thanks for joining me today, Paul. Yeah, Jesse, thank you so much.